Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 213. My name's Terry Frost and this time we're doing musicals again just like we did last time with Tansy. Instead this time I have Alyssa Cressenstein with me. How you doing Alyssa? I am very well thank you, how are you? I'm kind of okay for a Friday, uh, Sunday night after I've been to the gym for the first time in years for this week. Well done, well done. Yeah, well, it's kind of really weird because to get healthier, you've got to make yourself more decrepit. So it's all like stiff muscles and walking like you've been in the saddle all day and all that kind of thing. So I'm in that kind of phase of getting my fitness back, but I'll I'll get there. You will. Yeah, absolutely. To keep going. Yeah, so you're (laughs) over in Perth, wonderful Perth, Mm -hmm. or just south of. Um, what's, what have you been up to? And give us a bit of a spruik about uh, who you are, what you do, and what you've been up to. Um, it's very cold, finally, here in Perth. Right. Um, I am an editor and publisher at 12th Planet Press, mm. and also a member of the podcast Galactic Suburbia. Yep. Which Tansy reminded me last time, one of Hugo. That, yes, the Hugo <laughs> Award winning. Um... Yeah, and I've been working on our next book that's about to come out, uh, which is about Octavia Butler, so it's a tribute book to Octavia Butler. So I've been working on that. That's the one Alex co-edited, wasn't it? Alex that is the one that Alex is co-editing, yes. Yeah. I'm going to have to get Alex on the podcast now. I've had the other two of you guys. but You, you need her, you need the set. Yeah, you, it's, it's a bit like having two of the three action figures, really, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so anyway, um, what have you been absorbing media-wise? I have actually been um, watching the Twin Peaks 20 years later. Oh, cool. That dropped on Netflix. Um, yeah. How's it running for I've, you? I've no, I have no idea what's going on. I'm in the third. We finished the third episode, I think, and it is, you know, Twin Peaks, surreal, absurd, creepy, you know, interesting. Well, first time around, nobody knew what was going on either, so it's pretty much consistent with the original one. Exactly. It's only in retrospect when everybody dug it over and invented the internet so they could discuss it. <laughs> that that, um, that maybe maybe they had an idea about what was going on. <laughs> yeah, and, and they kind of cross-referenced it and kind of poured over every word that David Lynch had ever uttered, and they finally figured it all out. But yeah, I, yeah. it's on my list, but I haven't got around to it yet. I've been... Dipping into the shallow end of things, and um, but yeah, anything else? What's at the shallow? Um, what's at the shallow end, Harry? Ah, <laughs> um, well, um, two Marx Brothers comedies, Duck Soup <laughs> okay. and, and Monkey Business. So I watched right. them. Um, I, there was the old nineteen seventy five movie Death Race two thousand um, that Roger Corman did about a race across America where you score points for hitting people. Uh, oh. Roger Corman did an authorized remake of it this year called Death Race 2050, which has Malcolm McDowell playing a president with a very bad blonde hairdo. And, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's um, really kind of it harks back to 1970s-style exploitation stuff. Okay. And it's a little bit of fun. It's low budget. The special effects are very ropey. But it's got that kind of you know, political satire and don't, don't give a shit about anything 1970s exploitation film attitude. So I kind of enjoyed that. I picked it up quite cheaply because JB Hi-Fi had a two Blu-ray for the price of one deal, and I was one Blu-ray short. <laughs> and so <laughs> I picked it up, and, and I enjoyed it a lot. It was a lot of fun to watch. 
Uh, and then I got into Westerns and rewatched Rio Bravo, the classic Western Howard Hawks one with John Wayne, Dean Martin, and um, Walter Brennan and Angie Dickinson in it. And yeah, I re- really enjoyed rewatching that. And then I had to go to the science fiction remake of Rio Bravo. Mm-hmm. which was John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars from about 2000. And it isn't very good, even though, okay. even though it's got like a, a matriarchally run colony on Mars. Um, all the women are just kind of the same male stereotypes, but female. There's, there's nothing okay. kind of female about them. Yep. And right. uh, it's one of Jason Statham's early roles. But, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a missed opportunity there. And uh, then I watched... Three other things. I watched The Nice Guys, which is the movie with Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling in it, directed by Shane Black, and it's set in about 1977 in Los Angeles, and it's a crazy detective story, and everything that you think is bullshit about action films of the time, they address. You know when the guys put a piece of cloth over their hand and then punch through windows to get into buildings? Ryan Gosling does that, except he slashes his wrist to pieces. Good. So they deconstruct all of those tropes of classic action films in a beautiful way, and it's very funny, and um, they have a lot of fun with it. And, uh, yeah, The Nice Guys is a, is a bit of a hoot to watch and uh, really nicely done. And then I watched a movie that didn't get any love when it came out a couple of years ago, which is Tomorrowland with George Clooney. Yeah, it's Tomorrowland where basically George Clooney and um, a young woman... Basically, there are two universes, one of which is high-tech and everything, and then there's our universe. And as the story goes on, we find out that the super high-tech 1950s jetpack universe, somebody there is feeding all the bad vibes into our universe and making everybody kind of wish for the apocalypse and make it happen. So it's got a lot to say about optimism and about not believing the bullshit and about making the world a better place. And on the second viewing, I got a lot more out of it than I did the first time. It's a lot of fun. Beautiful special effects, big construction robots, 3D printing buildings, and all sorts of cool things like that. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't too bad. And then I saw a very low-budget thing done by some people I like on YouTube called Space Cop, which is very bad but a lot of fun. Uh, The special effects are really, really low budget, but they use them creatively. And... uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's got to be read on Wikipedia to be believed, that one. But apart from that, I haven't been doing a lot because I've mostly been sitting on the couch after going to the gym feeling sorry for myself. That's a shame. Seems uh, like you got a lot done, though. I did get a lot done. Well, plus holding a full-time job, of course. But uh, I don't talk about that on podcasts because it bores me, so it'll probably bore everybody else. Okay, so uh, we're talking about two movies this time around. 42nd Street, the classic movie from 1933, directed by Lloyd Bacon and Busby Berkeley, who did the musical numbers, uh, starring Warner Baxter, Ruby Keeler, Dick Powell, Ginger Rogers. And then we're doing a second Fosse movie, because last time around with Tansy we did Cabaret, so we're doing Bob Fosse's first directorial film from 1969, Sweet Charity, which stars Shirley MacLaine, and amongst other people, Ricardo Montalban. So I'm going to take a break, and then when we get back, we'll have a chat about 42nd Street. In the heart of little old 
old New York, you'll find a thoroughfare. It's the part of little old New York that runs into Times Square. A crazy quilt that Wall Street Jack built. If you've got a little time to spare, I'd like to take you there. Come and meet those dancing feet. On the avenue, I'm taking you to 42nd Street. Okay, so we're talking about 42nd Street, uh, 1933 American pre-code musical film directed by Lloyd Bacon and Busby Berkeley. I'll just do a bit of a brief pricey. It's 1932, it's in the middle of the Depression, and noted Broadway producers Jones and Roberts are putting on a musical called Pretty Lady, starring Dorothy Brock, played by Bibi Daniels, and directed and um, run by a guy called Julian Marsh, played by Warner Baxter. Uh, Julian Marsh realises it's probably his last production because his health is suffering. And uh, Bibi Daniels has got a complication with her boyfriend, Pat Denning, played by George Brent, whose career isn't going as well as hers is. Meanwhile, Ruby Keeler plays someone called Peggy Sawyer, who's an ingenue and it's her first production. Um... There's a bunch of other people in there. Um, Una Merkel playing uh, Lolly, a friend of um, Peggy's, and Ginger Rogers playing Anne, another pe- friend of Peggy's. You've got Dick Powell in there playing the male ingenue, and a whole bunch of character actors holding them up. So, uh, 42nd Street, what did you think of it? Well, this is a long-time favourite of mine, yeah. except whenever I sit down to watch it, it's like the first time I've seen it. I can never remember anything about it. Um, <laughs> no, that's fair enough. Um, I, <laughs> I don't know. I'm a massive fan of Ginger Rogers, mm. uh, so I'm sad she doesn't actually get that much in this film. Mm. Um, what I, I actually had to look up what pre-code meant because I didn't know, but yeah. while I was watching it, I was like, this seems quite naughty. Yes, it was quite naughty. <laughs> There's that bit where uh, Lolly's sitting on the lap of one of the other one of yes! the male characters, and say, and you know stands up suddenly and says, "It's like sitting on a tent pole." Flagpole. Flagpole. So flagpole. Yeah. Flagpole. <laughs> I was like, yeah. did she just say that? <laughs> yeah. There's that great dialogue yes. in there. There's all that saucy stuff in there. And it is quite saucy. It is. And, and um, also that, the the song um, "Shuffle Off to Buffalo" is a bit naughty as well. Yeah, it's all about the honeymoon and um, consummating the marriage and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Now that we have had the rice and flowers, the knot is tied. I can visualize such happy hours right by your side. The honeymoon store is one that you'll adore. I'm going to take you for a ride. I'll go home and pack my panties, you go home and get your scanties, and away we'll go. Ooh. Off we're going to shuffle and shuffle off to Buffalo. To Niagara and a sleeper, there's no honeymoon that's cheaper, and the train goes slow. Ooh. Off we're going to shuffle, shuffle off to Buffalo. Yeah, there are three main songs, in it, and they all come kind of toward the end of the film. There's Shuffle Off to Buffalo, there's Young and Healthy, and there's 42nd Street itself. This is a really kind of digesic musical because all of the musical numbers are built into the structure of the story, which is the production of this musical, Pretty Lady. And so when people are singing and dancing, except in the rehearsal process, it's all 
on stage. And, uh, yeah, that kind of makes it interesting and maybe a little bit different from the musicals most people are used to. Yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, the behind-the-scenes thing. What I really loved about it was, like, basically how nothing about the whole casting auditions experience has changed to, like, how they do... Um, so you think you can dance? Like that was ex- yep. essentially the same thing. <laughs> like, mm. oh, nothing's changed in a hundred years. Yeah, um, so it reminded me a lot of all that jazz and the, the kind of rehearsal yes. process and all that jazz as well. Um, it's like um, Warner Baxter's playing Bob Fosse, except forty years beforehand. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard some things about the original book. It was based on a 1932 novel by a guy called Bradford Ropes, and they changed it from the novel to the movie because Warner Baxter's character is actually. Um, gay in the book and having an affair with Dick Powell's character. Uh-huh. So they're partners, but they couldn't put that even in a pre-code movie. And right. so they had the kind of cute romance between Ruby Keeler and Dick Powell because of that. And Warner Baxter's character is kind of by himself and uh, stressed out to the max. Uh, he impressed me as an actor. I haven't seen too much of Warner Baxter in it, but he really gives a lot of energy and kind of that kind of nervous, frustrated energy as Julian Marsh. I, I really liked him in this film. Yeah, although he didn't really, he didn't really get the chance to have that much character development, except right at the end where he just sort of sits on this steps as everybody's like walking off, and the film, yeah, then the and the musical didn't like die, and it was yeah. like, ah, and that's yeah. it for him. And they're not giving credit to him at all for all his hard work. It's all about the stars which is the um, other bit that makes it kind of interesting. And it kind of ends on a, a kind of sad grace note where yeah. you know, he's, he's taken a lot of chances and he's worked really hard and everybody else gets the credit for it. Yep. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I like, I like the casting in this. I like Bibby Daniels playing Dorothy Brock. Um, I kind of, I've seen Ruby Keeler in a few things, but I kind of like her best in this. And then you've got, the male characters, which is kind of interesting. You've got Guy Kiwi playing Abner Dillon, who's the money man for the, for mm-hmm. the musical, uh, donating $70,000 to the production, basically so he can sleep with, um, mostly he wants to sleep with Dorothy Brock, played by B.B. Daniels. But he's just like a, a horny old reprobate um, with no kind of distinguishing features as a human being. Well, if you're going to pay for it, then it doesn't really matter what you pay for, does it? Well, um, yeah. yeah. But he, there's actually a character arc to that as well, which is kind of interesting, with him and Ginger Rogers. Yes. Which uh, I'll leave people to find because it's a lot of fun to see him. Um, yeah, there's a, an indis- yeah, not a very nice way of saying it, but he ends up being dominated by one of the chorus girls rather than him being the bossy blustery guy and I kind of like that turnaround for it and uh, Una Merkel I like as well she's um, a lot of fun in this one playing um, Lolly and uh, the the beautiful thing about this is not just the stars get all the good lines pretty much all of the character actors get good lines in this film there's a lot of snarkiness in this film it's a lot of backhandedness going on (laughs) yeah 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 um, it's just uh, yeah uh, that's the thing with pre-code films they had the ability to tell the story in a more adult way. And there's a lot of, in this one, there's a lot of the dynamic between the male members of the cast and the female members of the cast. And, you know, guys trying to get to sleep with the girls and the girls trying to make their own choices about that sort of thing, while sometimes not entirely being disinterested. 
particularly mm-hmm. Una Merkel's character, who's trying to get on with the um, guy who does the choreography. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting just watching that uh, the kind of sexual dance that there is in this one, which I, I kind of liked the way they handled it. It's it's uh, so start to like I guess movies that are done to the code mm. because they're suddenly so I don't know I, I don't dumb, know what the correct well, word dumbed vanilla, down dumbed down vanilla washed yeah about you know everybody's you know so good and naive and mm. wouldn't do anything when really you know yeah it, it really did affect American films if you have a look at say. French and Italian films of the time when America was under the production code. There's so much more stuff that's um, grown up and adult about them. And we'll talk a bit more about that when we talk about Sweet Charity. But, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where um, the fear of things getting out of hand morally destroyed um, an industry in a, in a certain way. It kind of made them fight with one arm tied behind their back for 40 years and it's a, it's a horrible shame that that happened yeah yeah <laughs> yeah basically we all agree production code sucked, sucked. um yeah so uh and then we then we get on to um the good stuff about busby berkeley's contribution mm-hmm. and the, the the bit that gets me the transition that i really love in this film there are two of them one of which is when they're standing on the back of the train in Shuffle Off to Buffalo, and yep. you, you've got a um, stage piece where um, a piece of the stage which is the back of the train, and then it kind of sandwiches out. So it's, um, it's cut through of the whole length of the train, and the male and the female singing are at the other opposite ends of the train. It's beautifully put together, a bit of set design. And it does give you a feel of being on a train, even with that kind of abstraction of being on a stage as well. And it gives them lots of room to – the dance number for that's really quite glorious as well. Yeah, and uh, I love the fact that they've got kind of like a Greek chorus in the background of everybody else who's on the train because the um, groom's got a sign on his back saying just married that his friends put there. <laughs> and so everybody knows where, why they're heading down the train. Hence <laughs> um, um, the boardiness. <laughs> yeah, talking about – yeah, they're going to – talking about alimony and divorce in their future and and um, everybody's kind of smiling and making jokes about them and they don't quite know why. It, and all this within the, the structure of a musical number. There's so much kind of social stuff and um, not, not nastiness, but you know, there's some of the girls are a bit um, down on marriage because obviously I they've been divorced. I think it's quite jaded. There's this jaded snarkiness about mm-hmm. it all that she's so naive and young and they've all been there and done that and, you know, with the whole eating of the banana in between yes. <laughs> all the comments. <laughs> yeah. so naughty. I'm like, yeah. what am I watching? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's the great thing about it is um, the more you watch it, the more little bits of business you see with it. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it just kind of really does work and um, it's a quite a cheerful song too. I mean, you, if you're doing something which is slightly cynical about marriage and things like that, it, it doesn't have a down note about it. It's all kind of good spirited, um, bitchiness in a sense. Yeah, well, yeah, bitchy. <laughs> yeah, it, it's good spirited bitchiness, which is a hard thing to pull off, I suppose, particularly when you're um, dancing on a stage. So that um, musical number works really well. Um, Young and healthy, I kind of like, um, where 
uh, Dick Powell sings with um, Toby Wing, the blonde he's with, in Young and Healthy, and then you start seeing that fantastic, surrealistic um, Busby Berkeley stuff where they turn the dancers into a kaleidoscope almost and, and the 3D yes. pattern of, of geometry. Um, and I want to say that um, Ziegfeld went off and did a lot of stuff like that after this kind of movie. That was just like the beginning of it with all the women. And there's like, you guys are supposed to be on a stage presenting a musical, but most of your choreography can only be viewed from above. Yeah. I mean, you could do it with a mirror, I suppose, if you have a mirror canted 45 degrees above the stage, which is a peril in itself. But, um, but yeah, and that's the other thing, too, is in the um, final musical, number 42nd Street, you've got Ruby Keeler tap dancing on a stage, and then suddenly she's tap dancing on the roof of a car with no transition and climbs Yeah, down. what happened there? It was beautiful. It was like, yeah, suddenly she's dancing on stage, but then she's dancing on a cab, climbs off the cab, and they've got all this beautiful uh, cinema studio rather than a stage full yes. of little vignettes of life on 42nd Street. You've got Dick Powell up in a speakeasy up above the um, at the action at the end of it um, because it's still during the um, prohibition? Prohibition, prohibition day. So, you know, he's got to be upstairs because you're not allowed to have a booze shop on the ground floor. You've got a little tragic thing of an um, abused woman escaping and um, dancing with another man and then her um, estranged partner stabs her in the back. You've got uh, stuff in a beauty salon, all of this stuff playing out over the um, the song, and then they go into this abstract thing where the people become skyscrapers. Uh, I loved that. It's marvellous stuff, and it's crazily imaginative, and it really kind of, this is one of the movies that really opened up musicals, because before that, um, this stage, they were stage-like stage musicals, because that's all people knew. Sound was only four years old, four or five years old when this movie came out. And so they were still learning how to um, record sound. They were still trying to move these enormous cameras, and there's a lot of panning and tracking shots mm-hmm. in this movie. But this is the one that said, we're going to stop treating these musicals like they're all on a stage, and we're going to see what we can do with them. And, and Busby Berkeley um, was, of course, the pioneer in that kind of stuff. Yeah, the kaleidoscope dancing is totally fantastic. Mm. It's one of the best things about early <laughs> musicals. Yeah, and, and the thing is, uh, can you imagine the machinery they had to have under there to get little bits of the stage to pile up? There's a little bench that um, Toby Wing and Dick Powell are sitting on, which kind of recedes into the stage, and then the top of the stage comes up a bit like a wedding cake. There's, the machinery just to make that work was inc- would have been incredible, particularly given the fact that they couldn't do it... Um, the way we do it now with computerized hydraulics and all that kind of thing. It's, um, mm-hmm. yeah, everything underlying that, uh, that all the musical numbers in this one are beautifully done and fantastic to look at, and they hold up well right to this day. Yep. So, um, sexual politics in this one. What did you think of the way the guys were treating the women and the way the women were, um, allies to each other a lot, particularly after a tragedy happens and, um, Dorothy Brock breaks her ankle and I was quite surprised by that when she comes in mm. and you and you're thinking the whole time because of course while she is doing better than her vaudeville partner she's also you know 
doing well for herself insofar as getting somebody to bankroll her to be the lead in a show. Yeah. Um, she wouldn't have had that otherwise. And so did she really deserve it? And so, of course, then she's paranoid the whole time because somebody else is going to come up and steal her thunder. Mm. And then then when there was that whole accident where um, Peggy – it's Peggy, isn't it? She was there. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly she has the part in the show. Like you're thinking this is going to be this really horrible showdown. Mm. And then in the end, she just gives her this fantastic advice to go out there and do the, her best she can. It was so sweet. Yeah, that, that kind of turns our expectations on on, our, on the head there. And that advice about, you know, people want to love you, just go out there and yes. be your best self, which is, you know, it kind of works and it's life-affirming apart from anything else. Here's this woman who's obviously her career is going to change significantly with her busted mm. foot and she's going away with her um, partner, Pat, who's, um, you know, they're probably going to end up doing vaudeville or something kind of low down market like that. But she's got a, you know, a wisdom and a perspective on Hollywood, uh, st- sorry, on Broadway careers that really was interesting to see. And I think also she in in the movie sort of realised that she did actually care for Pat more than perhaps she started out thinking, and that she couldn't really sell herself. Yeah. Instead and, of being with him. Yeah, and Guy Kibbe's character Abner, I hated him. Yeah. He was just a, a nasty piece of work, um, entitled because of his money, and, and particularly given the fact that this is in the depths of the depression, money will literally buy you pretty much anything. Um, he was kind of Donald Trump character without the wig, really, wasn't he? Yeah, and then when they managed to talk him around, because, of course, she threw him out of her room or something, mm-hmm. and so then he wanted to throw her out of the show, and yep. so he goes to the directors, and they're like, oh, this has got to happen, and the way that they talk him around is exactly the way that you would talk Donald Trump around. So I was like, oh, but they're calling you the angel of Broadway, and he's like, oh, yep. really? Oh, well, maybe I'll continue doing this then, yep. but only yep. if she apologizes. And they had a great perspective on it with, you know, like there are 200 people depending on this show going ahead. Yes. And their livelihoods and their careers depend on it. And your ego and pride are kind of endangering that. I like the way. And also that he was so naive that he thought, what, that she really loved him? Like that he couldn't even have the perspective of his own situation. Yeah. I think he didn't care whether she loved him as long as she put out Uh, that kind of character. And then when he kind of hooked up with Anytime Ally, you go, Annie, I'm sorry, Anytime Annie, and you go, yeah, well, they're kind of a match in a sense. Annie is is kind of amoral in in one way, but she knows how to manipulate this guy, so she's on a good wicket and she's made her own moral choices about things. Yeah, Um, she's pretty cluey. I don't think she was going into it without, yeah. Yeah, there wouldn't have been a prenup with her in there. But, yeah, so there are all these different um, relationships and characterizations. The engineer relationship seems to be a bit tacked in between um, Peggy and um, Billy Lawler, played by Dick Powell. That seems to be a kind of tacked on little piece. Where he professes his love at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't have much of an arc to it, probably because I was trying to figure out a way not to make him and Julian gay and uh, not even give an implication of that. So they've got... That kind of a thing. Um, you can remake this and, and do it right with those characters if you really wanted to, I suppose. Mm. But I'm going to have to try to find a copy of the novel now. But, uh, yeah, so overall, um, 
46th Street's an important musical in, in the history of musicals because it was at that point where they were broadening out and just saying these are not film stage musicals. We can do something that can't be done on a stage and show people things that they haven't seen before and that really can't exist in real life. I'm going to have to rewatch this again in a couple of years, I think, just to kind oh, of... Oh, for sure. Yeah. And for me, it'll be like the first time again. <laughs> well, failing memories like that, isn't it? You're always, <laughs> you're always meeting new people. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it really does work, and um, I think it holds up well because of that pre-code attitude. Yes, yes. Um, there are movies that date badly because of dated moral attitudes, but this one doesn't quite have that, really. No, no. And um, saucy. Yeah, yeah, saucy, and and there's a certain wisdom about human nature that the movie has that I was a bit surprised by because I hadn't seen it before this. And um, I kind of liked that, and I thought, yeah, this is you know, on a path that Hollywood could have taken had the production code not been enforced, you know, forced on them by a bunch of wowsers. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, we can move on from there to something else which has got moral ambiguity in it. And uh, when we get back, we will have a look at Sweet Charity, starring Shirley MacLaine, um, directed by Bob Fosse, Based on La Nota di Cabiria, I would say I've been practicing that. Uh, nice. Nights of Cabiria, directed by Federico Fellini. El Distante. And we're back, and we're looking at Bob Fosse's very first movie directorial debut, Sweet Charity, from 1969, based on Federico Fellini's classic film, The Notte di Cabiria, Knights of Cabiria, starring Giulietta Messini, Messina, sorry, who was Fellini's wife. And um, it was actually based also on the stage musical by Cy Coleman with lyrics by Dorothy Field and a book by Neil Simon, who adapted Fellini's movie into uh, first a stage show starring Gwen Verdon, who was Bob Fosse's wife. I hope you guys are keeping up with the relationships. Um, It's a story of a um, taxi dancer, a dance hall girl, play called Charity Hope Valentine, played by Shirley MacLaine. Uh, she's a taxi dancer in a nightclub in New York, along with her friends Nikki, played by Cheetah Rivera, and Helene, played by Paula Kelly. Um, kind of paraphrasing from Wikipedia here. She longs for love but has bad luck with men being robbed and pushed off the bow bridge in Central Park by an ex-boyfriend. She also has another humiliating encounter, it says here, with mm. Vittorio Vitale, Ricardo Montalban, mm. A movie star, um, then after failing to find a job through an employment agency, Charity meets a shy man called Oscar Lindquist, played by John McMartin, who played the role on the stage as well, in The Stuck Elevator. They strike up a relationship, but Charity doesn't tell him what she does for a living at first. When she finally does tell Oscar, he initially seems to accept it, but finally has second thoughts about it. The best things I like about this don't have Shirley MacLaine in them. This movie. Oh, harsh. No, but that's basically, you know, I'm willing to go with harsh because 
yeah. Uh, let's talk about Shirley MacLaine as charity. Um, uh, Julianne Messina's <laughs> kind of a very different kind of actress. Uh, like, yeah. So what did you think of Shirley MacLaine? While I get my words together, I'll give you a go. Okay. I love her in this film. I think she's fantastic. Okay. Um, I, I mean, obviously the character is um, – kind of sad because she just wants to be loved and because she's chasing around to be loved she's letting herself into really bad situations because all she wants is to be loved and lots of people take advantage of that so i think shelly mclean does a really starry-eyed romantic um girl really really well i think she's just forever hopeful that this is going to be the thing and i think McLean pulls that off really well. But what I really loved um, was when she was singing and dancing and you could get to see how awesome a dancer she is. She's a really fantastic dancer. And when she does the um, brass band number. Mm -hmm. Um, Which which one is that? I'm a brass band, yeah. That one. Yeah. So, you know, she spent – like this is a long movie. So she spent a lot of this movie being disappointed and heartbroken by – you know, bad guys, and then and then here Oscar has finally said that he loves her, which is the one thing that she has been chasing. We don't really know much about her past, but you get the feeling that she doesn't have much um, family. Yeah. Finally, somebody says that they love her, and she has this big brass band number where she's like, he said he loved me, and I just love her dancing in that number. She is such a good dancer. You she's want so great bad news? that she didn't sing. No, she didn't do all the dancing. <gasps> Which bits didn't she do? There are little bits that um, this is this is a good arc. You're going to like this bit. There's some bits where they had a, a double for her on the dancing. Wow! And the, the double was an actor called Georgina Spelvin. Georgina Spelvin is better known as a porn actress for doing uh, the Devil in Miss Jones. She actually went on to be a porn actress and um, is a very nice 80-year-old lady now who talks about her porn career. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but she was a dancer originally. She did she did the dancing body double for Shirley MacLaine in Sweet Charity. I'd be interested to see which bits were not hmm. were not MacLaine in that number. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know Shirley MacLaine had some problems with an abscess tooth or something, so maybe hmm. there were kind of some offcuts that. Um, Georgina Spelvin did, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't hate Shirley MacLaine in the movie, but the stuff I like is mostly Fosse because I'm a big dance freak when it comes to that kind of stuff. And uh, there are some really interesting bits and pieces. Uh, the first one that comes up, of course, is Big Spender, where all the girls are lining up trying to get the guys to dance with them. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, this film has some really. You know, this has some songs in here that have really lasted. So, Big Spender, If They Could See Me Now, and The Rhythm of Life. That's like three yeah. pretty big songs. Hey, Mr. Ken, I talked to you for a minute. Got a cigarette for me, Mr. Ho? Hey, Mr. Do you speak Spanish? Hey, Tiger, you want to dance? It'll dance one hurt you. Come here, cowboy. I want to tell you something. Ooh, you're so tall. Let's have some fun. The minute you walked in the joint I could see you were a man of distinction A real big spender Could you 
good looking, so refined. Say, wouldn't you like to know what's going on in my mind? So let me get right to the point. I don't pop my cork for every guy I see. And Big Spend is an interesting one because it's Fosse's. And, you know, as a dance choreographer, there was nobody better. And they're all dancing while leaning on a railing. Mm-hmm. So there's not actually that much dancing, but there's a lot of physicality and a lot of movement. But they're not dancing in a traditional sense. And Fosse had crazy problems trying to work out how to do Big Spender because he just couldn't come up with the ideas and he eventually asked Gwen Verdon for help with it, and they, between them they came up with the idea of them leaning on that railing and doing it that way, and uh, it, it really does work, particularly Paula Kelly, fantastic it's dance, very, Cheetah Rivera. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, it's very sexy, super sexy without really doing that much. Um, Paula Kelly, I could watch her just sitting and she's gorgeous. Sorry, can you say that again? You faded out there for a sec. Uh, sorry, Paula uh, Kelly, I could sit and eat her lunch. She is just gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Cheetah Rivera in there as well. She'd been on Broadway for a long time, went on to have a long career after that. Um, yeah, and uh, that kind of really works for me. And it's that combination of, you know, they're doing the come on to the guys, but they're bored at the same time. So there's a kind of, yeah, the, you know, they're trying to entice these guys into dancing with them because that's how they make their living. And, in the and meantime, I guess this has a lot of similarities. Can you say that again? This is very similar to the Chicago. Uh, yep, yeah, this is yeah. similar to the Chicago number, where they're yeah. all leaning against bars. Some choreographed exactly the same way. Yeah, yeah, it could well be. Um, uh, Chicago is another fossey. Um, even though mm, Rob Marshall. That's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, it kind of works really well, and it, it shows us dance in a different way. Charity's being dumped off a bridge by her nasty ex-boyfriend, and um, she ends up going out for a night with um, Vitali, the um, Italian film star played by Mexican actor Ricardo Montalban. And I'm incredibly impressed with two things about Ricardo Montalban. He's crazy fit, and he's got the best comb-over I've ever seen on an actor in a movie. <laughs> you there? You're fading out again. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, um, that comb over is, is a very impressive piece of hair architecture. Donald Trump could learn a lot from that. <laughs> it, it really is impressive. But uh, yeah, and um, yeah, so she goes out with her, and then we get the best bit of the movie, Rich Man's Frug, which is a dance number just for having a dance number in the middle of a posh party for rich people. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the random dance that makes no sense. Oh, this one, I think, takes it to a new level, though. Richman's fruit, particularly Suzanne Charney, who you like because she looks like Peter Credlin. So you didn't like Richman's fruit at all. <laughs> Tell me why. I could dance. I don't know. Um, and this one made me feel like I needed to be high to enjoy it. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, I'm not saying that, but I wasn't high at the time. Okay. But you love this number. 
I love this number because I love Suzanne Charney. Um, there's a thing that um, choreography by Fosse does with women's dancing that I like a lot for very unworthy reasons. I think that the dance number is its very abstracted and strange. There's a mm. few different ones. There's a sequence called the Aloof. There's another one called the Heavyweight. And there's a, a third bit. And Fosse just throws it in this pure dance because um, I think it was in the original stage play. And it'd be a shame to throw it out. Um, you've got to remember, this is his first movie as a director. And he maybe wanted it as a comfort thing because he was um, in a brand new medium. I'm unconvinced because I didn't love this number, but, you know, it's good. And, you're, and you also said that Suzanne Charney looks like Peter Credlin. Looks the, like Peter the... I, <laughs> I will add that I was watching this uh, while I was watching children, but both the children came over and watched this and they loved it. So maybe I'm wrong and everybody else is right. I think we have different tastes in things, but I'm not going to say anybody's wrong about an opinion on a movie because it's, it's such a bloody subjective thing and I wrestle with that all the time. But your kids have fantastic taste, I've got to say that. <laughs> I think it felt like a thing that they did. This is 1969 film, isn't it? Yeah. But in the 70s, it felt like they did a lot of this kind of stuff in a lot of the films. Mm. Um, and also in the Elvis Presley movies, it would have like a number where everybody just broke out and danced randomly and then we moved back to the film. Yeah, but Elvis Presley movies were never about the plot or the action. No, it was and, always you know, about the songs and selling the records. But yeah. Which is actually fair enough, but yes. <laughs> but no, I, we'll agree to disagree on Rich Man's Frugal. It wouldn't be any fun we if will. we agreed about everything. Exactly. But um, yeah, Bev Vereen is in that as well, um, a fine dancer and actor, and he does the splits really well in that scene. <laughs> but uh, then we get into things like, if they could see me now, um, there's got to be something better than this. Rhythm of Life. Um, they threw the r- Rhythm of Life. Here's where we're going to do the comparisons with Knights of Kiberia. Because there is a scene where Kiberia, who's the charity character in that movie, goes to a church, they've got to put in Sweet Charity something with the church, so they end up doing a hippie church thing with Sammy Davis Jr. playing a kind of funky, Nehru-jacketed priest. And um, did that one work better for you than Rich Man's Fruit? <laughs> that one sits nearly in the camp of Rich Man's Fruit, but okay. um, it's... I don't know. I guess actually by this part of the movie, we're like moving into some kind of hippie thing, especially with kind of how the movie ends. So it feels like the first half and the second half of the movie are really distinct acts. And obviously there's an intermission. Um, And I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm being unfair because the, the rich man's fruit is very sixties and mod. And then you've got this kind of flower power smoking the weed and, uh, they were only the seventh most popular church. So, yeah. Daddy started out in San Francisco Tooting on his trumpet loud and mean Suddenly a voice said, go for it Daddy spread the picture on a wider screen And the voice Daddy said, Daddy, there's a million go, pigeons go, Waiting to be hooked go, on go, new religions Hit the road, Daddy, leave your common law wife Spread the religion of the rhythm of life And the rhythm of life is a powerful beat Puts a tingle in your fingers and a tingle in your feet Rhythm in your bedroom, rhythm in the street Yes, the rhythm of life is a powerful beat. <laughs> it was uh, interesting. It sort of gave you a nice slice of um, 
the progression of time. Yeah. Moving, you know, 1969s, moving into the 70s, flower power time type of thing. I don't know. I, I had Sammy Davis Jr. in it. You can't really yeah. knock that. But anyway, um, yeah, so Sammy Davis Jr. comes in, does one scene and kind of, you know, does his full Las Vegas <laughs> nightclub act. Yeah, it's totally gratuitous as well. Hated yep. it much less than the rich man fruit. <laughs> yeah, and um, John McMartin was interesting as well, playing um, the character of Oscar, because I think he's playing it stage large instead of cinema large. Mm-hmm. Um, I got that impression that, yeah, there was he, he wasn't holding it in as much as he should have, but given the fact the camera was so close to him. Uh, and he, of course, did the original stage. Yeah. Production, um, yeah, that's probably a good call. And also, like the elevator scene, it's a very tight space. Yeah, and he probably did overplay that. He was in just before he died last year. He was in an episode of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, interesting. Yeah, playing a very very old guy, of course. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's the kind of link between now and then. Um, old character actors, you're finding out who they are and what they did when they were young is always a lot of fun in shows like that. Yeah. But um, yeah, and then of course we get to the um, wedding between Oscar and Charity, and the fact that he can't go through with it. No spoiler, because these movies are quite old. And <laughs> um, and Charity kind of finding her centre again as she walks through the streets of New York. What do you think of that? I was just like, so um, from the bit where he's proposed and then she goes rushing back to pack up her things and then she gets this surprise party from um, all her dance hall friends. And, of course, in the stage production, um, they're prostitutes and they've yeah. no, no, made in this... In the stage production of... The stage the... production, they're also dance hall, but the original... Yeah, in Nights of Kabiri, they're prostitutes, yeah. Yeah, and so it's kind of a little bit – you have to um, suspend your disbelief in that he would be so appalled because she's a um, a dance girl rather than a prostitute for yeah. being basically a ruined character. Um, but you can see him slowly uh, doing a backpedal as he's realising a lot more about her past. And, of course, a few people have a word in his ear. And so that whole time I'm, like, holding my breath and trying to, like, race through watching the movie before he's going to uh, back out, which, of course, he was always going to back out. And it's so tragic because she would have had the life that she wanted and probably been everything that he wanted, but he just couldn't do it. So you sort of get that really disappointment um, when you when her heart's broken and she has to go and get her suitcase yeah. or by herself at Grand Central Station and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then even though the end of the movie where she's skipping off down the street and um, the words are, and she lived hopefully ever after, mm. it's still kind of sad. Yeah, it's a lot more tragic in the original Knights of Kiberia because the Oscar character in that steals her money as well. And pushes her in the lake? Oh, uh, yep, kind of, yeah. That, yeah. No, she, before he can push her in the lake, she gives him the money. So, um, Nazi Kabiri is a, a great film to watch. I recommend it to anybody. I recommend any Fellini film. There hasn't been one that's not at least interesting. Mm. But um, the other thing, too, is that Sweet Charity filmed a second ending. I saw that. Yeah. I don't know I, how I feel about it. I saw the ending because it was on the disc that I've got. Okay. And yeah, he um, comes back to the bridge and tells her he loves her and things like that, and they both fall into the 
lake off the bridge and hugging the water and all that kind of thing. It's a really bullshit Hollywood ending. It's, it would be a very bullshit 60s ending, but it's not. I mean, maybe he will feel bad because this was an opportunity that he lost and he was a shy person and didn't really obviously have a lot to do with women because he was too shy. But, you know, he made that decision and he just has to live with it. Yeah. And, you know. And, no, the, the Hollywood ending really doesn't work at all. Um, I, I kind of went into it and I thought, okay, I'm going to give it a chance and yeah. see whether it works. But, no, it doesn't. Um, it, it, the upbeat bit of the ending is obvious. And it's also yeah, and it's not fair because he's already said to her that he can't put aside the fact that she's got history with other men. Mm. So then he comes back and oh, he now he feels bad, and now I can like pretend like it didn't happen. Like the betrayal's already done, and now mm. you're just glossing over it. Yeah. Nah. Yeah, I mean it, it's one of those things where they um, Fosse didn't want to film the second ending, but the studio insisted, and this is his first film as a director, so he doesn't have the clout that he had maybe after something like Cabaret. Mm-hmm. But he um, he filmed it, and then the studio went, "You're right, <laughs> shit, we're going with the original ending," and so they did that. But um, Sweet Charity mate was a failure. It cost twenty million to make it, made about eight million. Mm. Um, but um, it's gone on as a stage musical. I mean, they've had uh, an Australian tour in 2015. There have been productions of it again. Um, there was a kind of gap between the 1969 film and a Broadway revival in 1986. But since then, it's been on pretty much every couple of years somewhere as a stage musical and worked really well as that with a lot, as much as possible Fosse's original choreography. And um, it's become a kind of perennial for, um, for, for companies to do because um, yeah, it's, a, it's a good role for a woman. I'll, I'll agree with that. Um, the role of charity is one of those ones where you've got to go from tragedy, happiness, um, boredom, all sorts of different emotions there, and uh, the physicality of it really works. But um, I'm not, not as convinced as you are with Shirley MacLaine in it. Oh, I'm a massive Shirley MacLaine fan, though. No, so. that's fair enough, yeah. I mean, Ricardo <laughs> Montalban, yeah. I mean, the comb-over is fantastic. Um, Stubby <laughs> K turns up in it as the guy running the musical, Herman, and he yes. gets to sing a song like I Love to Cry at Weddings. It's tough for a loudmouth mug like me, who all the time bellows like a bull, <laughs> to make with the words about the missus to be, when what you think is an empty heart is full. <laughs> Tomorrow when you say, I do, I'll die. I'm almost too ashamed. To tell you why I love to cry at weddings How I love to cry at weddings I walk into a chapel and get happily hysterical The ushers and attendants, the family dependents I see them and I start to sniff Have you an extra handkerchief? And all through the service while the bride and groom look nervous Tears of joy are streaming down my face face. I love to cry at weddings Anybody's wedding Anytime, anywhere, anyplace Yes. Which is fantastic. Stubby K was in a whole bunch of other things like Guys and Dolls and um, Little Abner and a bunch of other things. He was also in Cat Ballou singing with Nat King Cole in 1966. Oh. 
you know, really great character actor, really great singer, and uh, a lot of fun. There's so much to this movie that I like, but I'm I'm not sure it holds together. I think Fosse no. only made five movies, which mm-hmm. is a shame because um, he basically um, smoked, drank, and amphetamined himself to death at the age of sixty. Ooh. But, um, yeah, I mean, just the, the kind of legacy of the man and that, that style of dancing and that um, sexiness he brought to dan- all of the dancers in, in the movie, pretty much, is you know, not to be underestimated. I saw a documentary about him after I watched Sweet Charity again the other day. And just what the guy did, I mean, he was a total bastard to everybody he had a relationship with, but they all stayed friends with him. Um, but uh, that's an accomplishment. Yeah, it takes a certain amount of charisma. Yes, it does. <laughs> but um, but yeah, just the, the that style of dancing. He was never convinced that he was a good dancer himself, but he was. He was superb. And um, yeah, I mean, I like it for that too. I'm going to have to go and um, find other things he did. He did. Um, there was a musical version of the Little Prince. Okay. Fossey, where Fossey plays the snake. And does a song called Snake in the Grass. Hmm. And every move in that, Michael Jackson stole for his act. Oh, really? Yeah, if you type um, Bob Fosse's Snake in the Grass into YouTube, okay. people should do that. And just see Bob Fosse's doing this kind of minimalist dancing. It's purely pinched by Michael Jackson. You know, not, not kind of like homaged, but dead out stolen. Mm-hmm. Which is a, a bit of a shame, but yeah, I mean, there's so much good stuff in here. There's Chid Rivera and Paul Kelly, of course, Sammy Davis Jr. doing his bit, Suzanne Charney and Ben Vereen. There's the whole idea of it and the colour of it. The, it's got eye popping colour in it, this film. It does, it does. It's and, very glorious. And the numbers are good. I, I agree with you that it probably doesn't quite hold together. Yeah. It probably needed an edit as and well. Whose idea was it? Yeah, let's make a musical out of a Fellini tragedy <laughs> about prostitutes. I mean, the fact that it's still being produced, yeah, it says a lot about it. But, um, yeah, it must have been a hard sell at the time to go, yeah, we've got this Italian movie about a prostitute um, who has an unhappy life and we want to make a, a Broadway musical out of it. And everyone's going, okay. <laughs> and then they say we've got Bob Fosse okay <laughs> yeah the dancing will be fantastic <laughs> yeah dancing will be fantastic we'll let Fosse have his head and the dancing and everything else in there will be fantastic so um, yeah that, that's pretty much it I suppose for Sweet Charity I'm going to insert little bits of the um, music from the movie and, and some of the songs into the podcast little bits and pieces and I want to put in a bit of Rich Man's Fruit just to piss you off <laughs> excellent <laughs> oh, sorry, cough. But uh, yeah, anyway, um, anything else we want to plug or promote or talk about before we wind this puppy up? You and I will both be at Continuum Convention in Melbourne yep. in two weekends' time. We will, and uh, we undoubtedly will hang out at some stage. We definitely will. Yep, and I will try to talk Alex into coming onto a podcast and we'll find something, some point of mutual coolness to talk about because I do want to, I like her opinions as well because I'll probably disagree with them more than I did with you and Tansy and I like that Cool. And um, yeah so anyway, um, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for asking me. It's been a lot of fun apart from that Skype glitch we had in the middle (laughs) which was frustrating and annoying and and just in case people missed it 
Alyssa didn't like rich man's frug. Okay, <laughs> no. so we'll underline that for you to see your opinion yes, gets in. That's right. But I did like Big Spender. That's my takeaway number yeah. from that movie. Okay. Yeah, yeah uh, Big Spender's good. And I love to cry at weddings. is a really weird one. It's a very old-fashioned bit of a song to chuck on the end of that film. It is. It's really odd. I, I was like, mm, this is weird. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I think they may have gave, given Stubby K something to do. Maybe. But, um, anyway, yeah, thank you very much for doing this. We will have to podcast again one time. Excellent. We'll find something. You know, we'll probably talk about something on Skype and go, yeah, we got to podcast this. Yeah. Oh, sorry, on Facebook. But uh, anyway, thank you. It's getting late on the Sunday night for me. It is. And it's time to knock, knock, knock that naughty clock that says it's time to go. And, um, yeah, so thank you very much for that, Alyssa. And um, all the best to everybody over your side of things. Thank you very much. And I will see you very soon. Yes, you will. There you go. Bye. 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 That was a lot of fun. And here, of course, are the Patreon credits in the style of movie credits. Thanks to the two Kerrys as well. And here they are. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers, and here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, the foley artist. Alyssa, the location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. Dylan, our go wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Carrie, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects. And Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers. And you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. 